The Gospel tells us who Jesus Christ was and is and what he did and is doing and how that meets the ultimate needs of sinful, guilty men before a holy God. So the Gospel of God's Son is said to be preached in Romans 1.6. That is, it is heralded or proclaimed. It's published and taught. Paul in Acts 15.6 says that he spoke the message of the gospel <clears throat> to the Gentiles. It is not so much meant to be debated as stated, proclaimed, preached, announced. So that's the first way that the gospel comes to us. It comes to us as a proclamation. Secondly, it comes to us as an offer. If it is indeed good news, and of course it is, and if it is called the gospel of grace, and it is, then it must be an offer. At a very simple level, if the proclamation is that God saves through Jesus Christ, then what's the purpose of preaching if not to offer people this way of escape? It says that there is this opportunity in human terms Take it. Come, everyone who thirsts. So there is a conditional promise in the gospel. If, there's the condition, if you believe and repent, you will be saved. That is an invitation. It is an offer. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But thirdly, and perhaps in some senses more fundamentally, the gospel comes to us as a command. There are requirements to salvation. And so the gospel declares that it is God's will for men to repent and believe. These requirements are often put in the form of a command. For example, when the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Paul commands him to do something. It is believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's a command. It's a duty. Believing is an imperative. It's something that must be done. And in giving out the gospel in Athens, Paul says in Acts 17.30, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Some of us grew up in situations where the gospel was given out kind of as a proclamation, definitely as an offer, not so much as a command. It was given out more as a hand-wringing plea from an impotent Jesus to please come and take him because uh, he, he needs us to complete the salvation that he's only able to offer and provide but not actually apply. That, of course, is not the biblical gospel. I do believe there's often enough of the true gospel in some of those sermons that people truly get saved. And I'm also sure I've never in my life preached a perfect gospel. But we need to understand that God isn't begging men to repent in the sense of he needs them to do something he can't do. He is commanding them. He has Jesus on the throne in Psalm 2, commanding them to kiss the Son, 
or the anger of the Lord will break out against them. All right? So, the gospel is a proclamation, it's an offer, and it's a command. That leads us very logically to a second question. Is faith in Jesus Christ a duty for sinners? Uh, the question uh, says that, that it's, a, it's a requirement. Right? Well, is faith in Jesus Christ a duty for sinners? The short answer is yes. God requires faith. You know, belief and trust. God requires faith in the work of Jesus Christ for salvation. That faith doesn't earn any merit, but it is the means whereby we are united to Christ and so are saved. It is his will that sinners believe in order to escape. So it's their duty. You may recall way back question 42, what is the duty which God requires of man? The answer was, the duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. Clearly, it is his revealed will that men believe on Christ. Again, Acts 16.31, we've just quoted. Mark 1.14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Those are commands. Those are imperatives. That's a duty. Repent and believe the good news. John 6, 28 and 29. Then they ask him, what must we do to do the works of God? To do the works that God requires. What was Jesus' answer? The work of God is this. To believe on the one he has sent. We rightly say that salvation, and especially justification, is through faith, not works. But there is a sense in which faith is a duty. Faith is a work. It's something you have to do. God gives you the faith, yes, in regeneration, but he doesn't believe for you. You believe, and if you don't believe, you will not be saved. Right? So is faith in Jesus Christ a duty for sinners? Definitely. You know what it really is? It's really a new covenant version of the first commandment. You know, we, we have to have the true God as our God. And the gospel is very closely related to that. Jesus is the Son of God, and we take him as our God. All right, question three. As this might be a surprise to some of you, but um, has anyone ever opposed this teaching that the gospel is a duty? And the answer is yes. Some have opposed this teaching, and that is because they think that the command, if the gospel is a command, that it implies ability on the part of the hearer. Various forms of hyper-Calvinists, such as the Gospel Standard Baptists in England, think that the Gospel can't be a command, because if God gives a command, it, it would imply that men have the ability to do it. And we know as, as totally depraved sinners, men don't have 
the ability to believe in God. Listen to um, Arthur Pink. Uh, and, and this is a, a little bit of an extended paragraph, but this is an excellent quote that explains um, this belief. And this is the belief in what's called duty faith. Now, duty faith was a very common term Back in the late uh, 1700s and through much of the 1800s, you almost never hear, hear this term anymore. Duty dash faith. It's it just simply takes the two words and put it puts it together as a noun. Duty faith. I have never heard, except in cases like this catechism class, I've never heard anyone bring up duty faith who was for it. Uh, duty faith in these churches is a dirty word. Duty faith is a bad thing, an unbiblical thing. It's part of Fullerism. It's part of not what the Bible teaches, but what Andrew Fuller taught. So this is a term that's usually used by hyper-Calvinistic Baptists uh, to deny that uh, the gospel is a command. They also, by the way, deny that it's an offer. Um, it's simply a, a proclamation in their minds. But here's what Pink says about it. It is the bounden duty of all who hear the gospel to savingly trust in Christ. Amen, Arthur. <laughs> Otherwise, their rejection of him would be no sin. Many of our readers will be surprised to hear that the self-evident truth is de denied by some who are otherwise sound in the faith. They reason that it is inconsistent to call upon the spiritually dead to perform spiritual duties. And of course, that's what I do every Sunday, don't I? I call upon Christians who are spiritually alive to do uh, spiritual duties, but I also call on every unbeliever in our midst to believe and repent. I call them to do something they cannot do. <laughs> there is a certain denomination in England, Pink goes on, that has the following among their articles of faith. And this is a quote. We deny duty faith and duty repentance. These terms meaning that it's every man's duty to spiritually and savingly repent and believe. Now, I hope you find that rather shocking, rather plainly against the Bible. The New Testament is rife with examples of the command to repent and believe. We deny also that there is any capability in man by nature to any spiritually spiritual good whatsoever. Amen. We agree with that. We just don't believe that that is logically against the previous sentence, right? Or the offer and the proclamation and the duty of the gospel. So we reject the doctrine that men in a state of nature should be exhorted to believe in or turn to God. Therefore, that for ministers in the present day to address unconverted persons or to indiscriminately speak to everyone in a mixed congregation, calling upon them to savingly repent, believe, and receive Christ, is to imply creature power and to deny the doctrine of special redemption. 
So they deny that it is our job to command, offer uh, the gospel to unbelievers. But besides the scriptures that plainly teach what they call duty faith, and which we could call duty faith, except when we say uh, believe or have faith in, a, in the form of a command, we, we feel like it's a bit redundant. Um, but we simply think they make a logical error. The fact that someone can't do something doesn't mean that he can't be commanded to do it nonetheless. A man may have a responsibility to perform, so, perform something that he can't do. Now, admittedly, in some cases in our natural lives, uh, to do that would be unfair or unreasonable. We don't take our children at the age of six and put a high jump bar in the backyard and command them, in all seriousness, to jump over the high bar. We don't command our children to fly. Right? That's against nature. And that would be admittedly unfair or unreasonable. But in this case, God's commanding men to do this is not unfair. For in commanding men to perform what they, and we agree, utterly cannot do, they are forced to acknowledge their complete unworthiness and ability to believe. And they need to look outside of themselves for salvation. They can't save themselves. Their own belief can't save themselves. So instead of the command implying ability, we would argue with this very small uh, group of Christians, in fact, God's purpose in part for giving the gospel as a command is to teach inability. Are there any questions about that or some of these previous questions and answers. Again, that may be new and that may sound very strange to you, um, that some would deny that what looks like a command and is in a command tense in the Bible isn't really a command. Uh, that is what they argue very plainly. Well, if we believe that faith is a duty for sinners, we go to question four, is, is repentance a duty for sinners? Again, the answer is, of course, yes. Acts 17.30, we quoted already, God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's not just addressed to people who somehow can look into their souls and recognize that they've been regenerated, and so it's okay for them to repent and accept the commandment, but not for anyone else. That's ludicrous, of course. And it won't surprise you to learn that hyper-Calvinism has always been infected with a um, hyper-introspectionism because they're forced to look inside themselves to find out, oh, am, am I the elect? Am I leaning toward God? Am I feeling something that would give me ground to believe and repent? Because it's not just in the gospel that's the ground for repentance. There must be something in them. They have to be different than their neighbor to respond. As you can see, that's very unhealthy. It's very unscriptural. Right? 
Here's another example of a command from uh, the scriptures to repent as a duty. Ezekiel 18, 30 to 32. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, says the Lord. Repent. There's the command. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, did God really think that they could by themselves believe, by themselves repent, by themselves make themselves a new heart and a new spirit? Well, of course not. Of course not. He goes on, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Or Ezekiel 33, 10 and 11. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sin weigh us down and we're wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Now here's God's word to the prophet that he must say to them exactly as God has given it to him. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Doesn't that sound like a proclamation? Well, it is. Doesn't that sound like an offer? It is. Doesn't that sound like a command? It is. It might be interesting to some of you to note that the call to repentance, this duty of repentance, is actually the first recorded content of the preaching of John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, and Paul. This is no small thing. John, in Matthew 3.1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus, in Matthew 4.17, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. What did he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Peter, in Acts 2.38, replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. First recorded sermons or account of their preaching. Even Paul, when he was testifying before Agrippa, he summarizes his preaching as repentance. Here's what he says. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God, and prove their repentance by their deeds. This demonstrates the importance of preaching repentance as a duty of the gospel. Question five, why have some opposed this teaching? Well, again, you can guess. Some because they think the command implies ability. The command to repent does not imply the ability to repent. But others because of a misunderstanding of the phrase faith alone. 
Some think that commanding repentance means that salvation is partly by works instead of only by faith and grace. Now, I'm going to actually delay responding to this because we've got a whole uh, lesson in, in, a, in a few uh, weeks, Lord willing, just about repentance, and we'll deal with this question a bit more. Um, some people kind of get the, 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 the quivers, the, the shakes, when they hear that um, repentance is a saving grace, right? or that it's a command necessary to be saved. Um, but that's biblical teaching. We just need to understand it properly. Um, but just let me say that there are a number of things required for a man to be saved. Uh, none of them, however, uh, assume or mean that doing those things is meritorious. Uh, repenting doesn't earn you salvation. Enduring or persevering in the faith, having your life full of love and good works, uh, pursuing holiness without which no one will see God, none of those things earn you salvation. None of them are meritorious in any way, shape, or form, but they are all necessary. You see, here's the proper balance we must strike between faith alone for justification, amen all day long, and the fact that God has required a number of things for a man, woman, boy, or girl to in the final day achieve full and final salvation. They must repent, not only believe. They must endure to the end. They must show forth good works. They must have a personal holiness. Without it, you'll never see God. Again, none of those earn you any points, but all of them are necessary. This is why they are, and I've used this phrase with you before, they are non-meritorious necessities. There are several of those for salvation. Even faith itself is not in itself meritorious. It just connects us to the merit of Christ, right? Again, this is why sometimes it's very difficult to explain the gospel to a Roman Catholic person well steeped in that church's teaching because they tend to look upon faith as meritorious. They have faith in faith. Oh, well, you're a, you're a man of faith. You're a woman of faith, as if somehow faith saves you. No, faith only saves you as it connects you to Christ. Strictly speaking, faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you, right? It's not wrong to say faith saves, but we have to understand what it means, all right? So that's why some have opposed this teaching about repentance. I, I spent most of my childhood and part of my adulthood in churches that, that had no place for repentance. And that's very sad because that's actually a hindrance to people coming to true salvation. Question six, are sinners able to perform these duties? The answer is not without a new creation. 
not without a new creation, not without being born again, not without the Spirit of God blowing life into them. Men in their natural condition in Adam are spiritually dead. They are unable to perform any righteous duty, including believing. An example of this is found in John 12, 37 to 40, where it says that even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in the people's presence, they still would not believe in him. Well, why wouldn't they? Hadn't he done enough miracles? Hadn't his teaching been riveting enough? <laughs> this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, now here's the explanation. Here is the infallible scriptural reason why they would not. For this reason, they could not believe. Because, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, or I would heal them. So men will not, not because they have no wills, but because they don't have a will free to do right, free to obey God, free to respond to this offer. More generally, we see in John 6, 44, no one can come to me. And come to me is a way of, of saying believe, or it's describing faith, or trust. Trust is really the better word in John, and this is a quotation from John. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, man is impotent, God is is potent. He is able when man is unable. And that's why there's hope. That's why there's hope. Well, our final question, then how is the gospel a way of escape? I mean, if, if men can't say yes to the gospel in their own strength, why is it good news? How is it a way of escape? Well, the answer is because the gospel is the instrument the Holy Spirit uses to convert. The gospel is the word of God. And when the spirit is joined with the word, salvation comes. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. There's repentance, there's faith, there's the Word, there's the Spirit, all together in a few verses. You see, the gospel is the way of escape because God has chosen to use its message to enliven the spiritually dead and grant them salvation. <laughs>